I have spent most of my life absolutely hating coffee. You can boo if you want, that's fine. Or you can cheer. I, 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 th- I you know, I just, can we just be honest? It's mud water. It's, it's steamy bean water. It just, it looks like dirt, right? And I think, you know, coffee drinkers, you know, I've thought for most of my life that coffee drinkers, probably okay. I mean, there are firemen who are coffee drinkers. There are teachers who are coffee drinkers. You know, my wife's a coffee drinker, and I think she's pretty okay. She, she's, a, she's a, you know, a rather decent human being. But can we just, can we kind of be honest? And, and I wrote some things down about my issues with coffee so, so that I wouldn't forget them. You know, the first thing is this. How many people do you know that their first time they ever drink a cup of coffee, they go, mmm, now that, that is what I've been waiting for my whole life. When you first drink a coffee, you put it up to your lips and you drink it, and you make that face like somebody just farted in the room, right? You kind of, mmm, oh, you say, oh, that's okay. And then what happens is, right, then these people say, well, you know, I'll be able to handle it, because then they start, they, they discover cream and sugar. Then they discover all the flavorings that you can put in coffee, and they survive it. But then you have the guy who, he has like this pretend badge of honor of, well, I drink my coffee black. <laughs> like it's something special to drink it the way that it, God intended it to be drunk, right? Like you're, like this is how it's supposed to, you're not supposed to have all this stuff in it, but these guys walk around and go, well, I drink it black, the way it's meant to be. Like, it takes something special to do that. I mean, what is wrong with us? Why do we enjoy this thing called coffee? Or why do you enjoy this thing called coffee? And then, think about this. How many people do you put up a meme or something on Facebook or have a mug that says, don't talk to me, I haven't had my coffee yet? Right? And we put it on Facebook like that's something impressive. Don't talk to me, I'm not a normal human being until I have this water inside of me. It's bizarre. It makes no sense. You're sort of like, this doesn't seem, can we just admit, look, look, can we just admit this? Coffee, okay, is the way that the caffeine addict receives their caffeine. Otherwise, you all would walk in the office and the first thing you would do, you'd have this thing on your desk that you would put directly into your veins so you can receive your caffeine. But instead, you hide it through this thing called coffee that you spend all of this money on just so you can have your caffeine and function like the normal human being the rest of us function like. See what I will do? I will take my $2.50 shot glass of orange juice that I'm not allowed to refill, and I'll take that. But guys, I told you that I was going to admit a couple things in here, and here's the problem. I've spent my life hating coffee, but I now love it. Suzanne, could you please bring my Starbucks to me? (laughs) And the thing about this... This started a few months ago. I was meeting with a friend, and we were meeting at what is colloquially known as the butt crack of dawn, also called 5.30 in the morning, and I realized if I'm going to get up and have any kind of conversation with this person, I'm going to have to have something to survive, and I said, I guess I'll try coffee, and so the first week I tried, I said, well, I'll drink it black because, you know, that's the badge of honor, people. You know, that's how you should do it, and I said, this is a terrible idea. I couldn't even get through a conversation. I would drink it and go, mm be like, what did I say wrong? And I'm like, no, you're fine. <sighs> Go again. You know, and then I started realizing, oh, there's all these sort of things that you can do with this. And guys, I am officially a frou-frou drinker now. This is my cinnamon dolce latte. 
I don't do the pumpkin spice. I'm not, I'm not girly enough for that. But I'll do my cinnamon dolce latte. And, and, what the, and, and the reason this is so good, it's so good on a day like today because it's got kind of the whipped cream on top, you know. And I think it's like 350 calories. It should be like 900 because it's so good. And that whipped cream first with the cinnamon, you know. Hmm. That hits you. And then the espresso and the milk, it's all warmed up in there. Just, oh, it's perfect. And so now... I love this. And this is like just by far the best thing. And, and so, so Amber and I were grabbing coffee today after practice. And I said, let's go grab some coffee. And we were going to get coffee. And we were arguing over who was going to use their Starbucks app. Because we both wanted the points. Right? I mean, this is, this is really, got, guys, this has really gotten bad. But, but here's, here's the point. This is, this is why I want to talk about this. Is that most people would not refer to what's going on here as hypocritical, right? Most people wouldn't look at the fact that I used to hate coffee, and, and now that I love it, most people wouldn't, you know, look that I used to roll my eyes at my wife when she would warm up the Keurig to now that we argue over who's going to get the first cup out of it, or who's gonna, are we going to use the big coffee maker, what are we going to do this morning? That normally isn't seen as contradiction, it's not seen as hypocrisy, Right? Because it's not like I go into Starbucks and I go, look at all you ridiculous people <laughs> with your coffee. <laughs> you people are awful. You're the worst. Cinnamon Dolce Latte, please. <laughs> you know, and I don't look at my wife in the morning and I don't look at her, you know, and go, <laughs> coffee. I'll have orange juice. I'm going to grab some coffee now. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't do that. And so you normally wouldn't look at me and go, well, that's, you know, that, that's absolute contradiction. But I kind of feel like a walking contradiction because... I used to like, you know, hate coffee, and now I like coffee. So here's the thing. What I described, this sort of change of understanding, this sort of change of view, this sort of different way that I have, I have altered and looked at things. I mean, honestly, I, I'm being serious. Like, I would probably beat myself up if my 20-year-old self came and met my 39-year-old self, and I was drinking a cinnamon dolce latte. There are all sorts of other reasons I'd probably beat myself up too, but this is just one of them. But you look at it and you go, that's not, that's not hypocritical. That's changing your mind. It's, it's reasonable to change your mind about something like coffee. We accept that people have different views about coffee, whether they like it, whether they want to drink it. But here's the thing. Same ideas about contradictions, about a change of opinion, about a change of way of looking at things, becomes very uncomfortable when we begin talking about the Bible. So when we begin to apply a word, like a view changed, or that there is some kind of contradiction taking place, with coffee, that's reasonable. In the Bible, all of a sudden that begins to become a little more scary. And, and here's the thing. If you're here this morning, and there is a tension within you, when I begin to have this conversation, when I begin to mention the Bible and contradictions, and you start to go, I'm feeling a lot of tension about this. If you haven't been around Southeast very long, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to lean all the way into that discomfort. If you are someone who is a Christian, who's been around the Bible for a long time, and, and for you, you don't, you, you know, you, this isn't something, you know, that you're not feeling a lot of tension about or whatever. Go on and lean into, have some empathy with some folks who are feeling that contradiction. Let's, or that, that kind of 
that kind of tension. Let's, let's all go into that place together, okay? Let's feel a little tension about that. Because here's what you're saying. You're, you're saying, well, Ryan, how could something that so oftentimes is called the Word of God have contradictions? Right, right? Doesn't that mean that it's wrong? Now, this is a pretty, pretty bold statement, but just stick with me, please. It does have contradictions. There's, there's no way around that. And you can do all sorts of things, and there's all sorts of theories, and there's ways to work around it. But if you just came to the Bible for the very first time without any education or background, and you looked at it, you would go, this passage seems to be contradicting this passage. What do I do with that? What does that mean? And that's absolutely a reasonable question to ask. So some of us have a tendency to go, whoa, slow down, don't ask questions like that, it's too dangerous. No, 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 let's lean, let's lean into that reality a little bit here. Let's get a little uncomfortable with that. And let's do this. A couple weeks ago when we were talking about this, I said, there's, there's something within us, and this happened to me in college, that I grew up with the Bible, I got to college, I began to ask all sorts of questions, and one part of me wanted to take the faith that I grew up with, the scripture that I grew up with, and I wanted to just go forget it. And I just wanted to toss it and say, this doesn't make any sense. There's too many, too many questions here, right? And, and can, you don't have to raise your hand, but can we be honest? Some, we've all felt that way at some point. It's part of faith. Scripture writers, actually in Scripture, have these moments where they're like, I give up, I'm out. And then it's like the very next verse, they go, but there's something I can't let go of. There's something about God I, I can't let go of this. And so they end up holding on to this tension. Part of me wants to say, oh, I can't take this anymore. I can't believe this. And the other part of me says, but God has been faithful and true, and there's, I just have to hold on to this. So I'm going to live in this tension about this thing. So there's the question, then, what do we do? And here's the thing. It's not a how, okay? It's not, not a how is that, or, or you know, where, what are those contradictions? I want to ask a better question. This is the question, I think, that is at the center of this entire series we've been talking about. Why? Why is it there? What, what does it actually have to teach us because it's there? So here's what we're going to do. Let's start out with some glaring contradictions that are found in what are called the historical books of the Bible, because the Bible has all these different kinds of books and different sort of genres. You have poetry, you have historical books, okay? You have the Gospels that are the stories and narratives about Jesus. You have letters from Paul that he wrote to churches. So all these different kind of genres of books, and these are called the historical books. Now, if you are a history person, I have a friend who's a history teacher, you think your historical books should probably be pretty accurate. So if there are any questions here, this seems to be a place to go, why are there questions here? Isn't this the thing that should be exact? So let's just go right on into it and listen to some of these, okay? Because these, these seem out of place. They're in historical books. These shouldn't be here. So 2 Chronicles 36.9 and 2 Kings 24.8. Listen to these. These are, these are parallel passages, okay, that are, that are telling the same story. Okay, but they're telling the story at different points, but they're telling the same story and so these are parallel passages where you should see similarity. And now listen to the differences. This is interesting. 2 Kings 8.26. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name 
was Athelia, a granddaughter of King Omri of Israel. Now we go to 2 Chronicles 22.2. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he began to reign. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athalia and is a granddaughter of Omri. Now what's interesting about that is they get the name of his mother. <laughs> they get the name of his great-grandfather correct. But then you look at this and you go, wait, 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 wait. Was he 22 or was he 42? And you're kind of like, what's going on here, right? Now, if you're reading this in the NIV translation, because there are different translations of the scriptures. Remember, the scriptures were written in Hebrew and then the New Testament in Greek. And so people had to take the manuscripts of these different uh, languages they, and they pulled them together and they would translate it in English for us. Newsflash, just so we're all clear, our Bibles did not land on our grandma's coffee table in English. Somebody had to translate this. So they would have all these different manuscripts to use as they translated. They would pull all of these together. And so here's what the NIV translation, so a group of people who sat together to create a translation using these manuscripts. They were a team together that at the beginning of the NIV translation, it says, who all were the translators who were a part of the team that did this? They leave a note for us. The note looks something like, like this right here. Second Chronicles 22.2, some Septuagint manuscripts, which was the Greek version. So, the, so here's, this is kind of a cool kind of history lesson is that the Hebrew Bible, because so many people, so many Jewish people in the ancient Near East spoke Greek, they then translated from Hebrew into Greek. So now you have the Septuagint, which is their Greek version, okay? Some Septuagint manuscripts and Syriac, and then it says, see also 826. So it's telling us, compare these two passages in the Hebrew, says 42. So what happened is, what we understand is going on, is that people were writing these dates and these names and these people and these numbers. They were copying and writing these down. And as they wrote those copies down, they would put different numbers. And there's all these theories about, well, maybe it had to do with because the numbering system changed. Maybe the way that you calculated years had to change. Maybe somebody just made a mistake, and when he wrote it down, he wrote 42 instead of 22, and that kind of explains why there's a difference here. And then you can kind of go, well, does it matter? Who cares if he's 22 or 42? But it gets interesting, because at other places in the scriptures, we find this. Um, listen to this. So, so let's, let's jump up, and, and we'll talk about this a little more. Um, in 2 Samuel 24, 9, um, oh, oh, sorry, right, let, me go back, let me go back for a second. They can make these errors, right? And this isn't the first time they did this. So there's a kid, and this is what I want to tell you. There's this, there's this other passage, and I didn't put it in my notes, I didn't put it on the screen, but this is interesting, is that in one, it says that when he became king, he was 18. And then in this other one, it says when he became king, he was eight. Now, 18 and eight is a huge deal. That's a really big difference. That makes you think differently about what's going on. But then you kind of ask yourself, and we can do this, you could go, it's just numbers, I mean, does it really matter what their age is? It just seems like maybe there's some copying errors. Okay, that's understandable. I, okay, big deal, right? Okay, now, go with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 24, 9, it says this. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. And now we'll jump to 1 Chronicles 21, 5, which is the parallel to this passage and what it has to say. Joab reported the number of fighting men to David. 
in all of Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 475,000 in Judah. Well, now the numbers are all sorts of all over the place. But, you know, they're just numbers. Maybe they copied wrong, right? Big deal, what's the point? Well, the numbers might not seem to matter. But how they got those numbers, why they got those numbers, now this is where this starts to get interesting. So let's back up a couple verses in these couple of passages and see something that really can't be attributed to copying errors. We kind of have to attribute it to something else. And it's a, it's a pretty clear what seems to be contradiction. But on closer inspection, something else seems to be going on. And, and that something has the power to change everything. So listen to this. We're going to back up. So here's 2 Samuel 24, 1 through 2, just a few verses before this guy Joab counts people. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Now we're going to jump to this passage in First Chronicles. So this is right before, again, the parallel passage where he reports how many men there are. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many men there are. Now, we are not talking about numbers anymore. In these two parallel passages, it tells tells the same story in two different books. This, This is kind of fascinating. In one passage, it says, So then God in his anger burned up and said, David... Go and get a census of these people. And then in Chronicles, it says, Then Satan led David to go and make a census of the people. Then you sort of go, wait a minute. (laughs) In one, God says, go and do this thing. And the other one, David has the excuse of, well, the devil made me do it, right? Or Satan made me do it. And there's some theory, there's some different words here, there's some things about this, but there is a difference. They could have placed in here simply the word for God, and they use the word Satan. There's something going on, something of a different way. So in one, you could say this, and again, there's all sorts of theories about why the word say, but in one, let me give a kind of a view of this. In one, you could say that taking the census was a good thing because God commanded them to do this thing. And throughout Samuel, throughout the Old Testament, God says, go and do this, and the people go because that's the right thing to do. We're going to listen to what God has to say. It seems to have a positive sort of spin on it. In the other one, Satan is pushing these people towards taking a census. And when Satan is brought in there, usually it means that Something is amiss, something isn't the way it's supposed to be. Um, You know, they're being tempted to do something that isn't now a good thing. So in one passage, it appears that taking a census is commanded by God, this is a good thing to do, and then in the other one, it seems like census taking is a bad thing to do. Now, which one is it? 
Now, I realize that we're sitting here going, it doesn't matter because none of us are taking a census, right? I mean, census taking today matters. There's people fighting over our census in this country. So obviously, census taking is important, but you sort of go, maybe this doesn't have any sort of connection at all. And that's where we could totally miss the point. Census taking in the Old Testament was an absolutely huge deal. This was massive, okay? Census taking allowed you to know how many people were in your kingdom. Census taking determined how you would spend your resources. For the ancient world, this meant that you could have more taxes, which meant you could spend more money, which meant you could take bigger loans out so that you could get the soldiers and the equipment that you needed to build your kingdom. Now, if you've been a place around this place very long, you know that kingdoms in the Bible are a very big deal. From the very beginning to Jesus, to the book of Revelation, to what we talk about all the time here, kingdoms matter. Because the question that is being asked all the time is, whose kingdom are we building? This is the question that the people in the Old Testament were asking themselves over and over again. We see it sort of as a conflict taking place. That the good kings would spend their resources and their energy building God's kingdom. And, and what that usually meant was not armies. It didn't usually mean meant warfare and people. It meant that they were spreading the kingdom or spreading the goodness of his kingdom. They were listening to what it said. You will go and you will bless all people. That was God's kingdom that was described that way. It's, it's the kingdom of Jonah that he goes to the Ninevites who were the hated people of Israel. And God teaches him a lesson. He says, I love these people and I want them to repent and follow me too. And Jonah's like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. You know, I thought we were, you know, it was about our kingdom. And God's like, it's not. It's not about your kingdom. It's about my kingdom. Jonah gets a, just a, all of a sudden straightened out. Some of us need that too. I mean, look, this is so easy to do. We live in America. I don't know if you realize that. We live in the suburbs of Indianapolis. By the world's standards, we are in the top 1% of the richest people in the entire world. And I know we walk around and we don't feel very rich all the time. It doesn't take that long to search. Just search about how we're the richest people in the world. Look at how other people live around this world and the way that people are treated and realize we have resources to do good with. We could legitimately end world hunger, people. Just Christians, you realize that? Just Christians with the resources we have. But here's what we do. We buy into, let's build our own kingdom. Let's build the kingdom that we want. And I do this all the time. I was standing on my deck looking out. I've told you this before. This is sort of the way that I see it in my head. I look out and I go, look at what I have built. Look at what I've created. Look at this land. Look at all of this before me. This is mine. Bow down before me. And then my kids and my wife are like, you are so weird, right? I'm like, we're supposed to be having dinner, sorry. But that, this is what we do, right? I was telling a friend of mine, I opened up a drawer. And I open up my drawer and I look at my nightstand and I, and I started pulling stuff out and I go, why do I have four iPhones in here? Why do I have like four iPhones from all these different years? And I'm like, because I had to upgrade because that's what you do because I needed the latest and the greatest because why wouldn't I, right? 
Then I go to my friend's house, and he has a TV, I swear to you, is as big as his wall. And I come home, and I go, oh, man, that 50-inch TV is so, oh, it's garbage. I want his TV, which is called coveting Bible. Anyways, and I look at that, and I say, I want that TV so that I can walk around and go, look, look at what I have. Look at all of this stuff. This is making me happy now. I'm in charge, right? And I even look at my finances, and I look at the things, and I say, no, I want to make the decisions about what I do with my money. I want to make the decisions about what I do with my time. This is mine, right? And then God reminds us, (laughs) this isn't yours. This isn't your time. These aren't your resources. You're borrowing. And sometimes, guys, we're pretty crappy stewards of the resources God has given us. And I mean that societally, and I mean that individually. Whose kingdom are we busy building? I mean, I just want to let that just sit for a minute. Because I think we need to ask that question. Now, do you feel that sort of tension within you? That all of a sudden, when we begin to take this into a place that it feels personal for us, Am I building God's kingdom? Or am I building my own kingdom? Am I building a kingdom full of junk that's going to end up in drawers that nobody's going to care about? A 50-inch TV in 10 years is going to look like those stupid gigantic consoles at one time that nobody can give away, right? But right now, right now, see, our kingdom is fleeting. It's short. It's short-lived. It doesn't, it, it just, it's, it's, it's so right here. God's kingdom is forever, eternal. You never run out of his resources. And there's, there's this parallel. And all of a sudden, we talk about kingdoms, it goes from something that was all sorts of maybe practical to something that is incredibly spiritual. Now, let me give a thought to this today. Second Samuel was written around 600 B.C., and in 2 Samuel, as a reminder of the scripture that we put up there, and, and, and Tim, why don't you put that up again, the 2 Samuel passage. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David, saying, go and take a census, right? So God had them do this thing. This is, in 600 BC, this is how they wrote this. Now, First Chronicles, which has the word Satan in it, which sort of kind of makes this spin that this is, you know, you could say it either makes a spin sort of in a negative way, or you could say, The devil made him do it? That sounds really bad, okay? So I'll let you kind of decide where you want to go with that. But in the first one, there's a little bit more of a positive to it. The second one, Satan has something to do with it. Well, that was written in 300 B.C. Now, hundreds of years took place between these two accounts as people wrestled with this question. Who is God? Who are we? How do we exist in relationship to him? And whose kingdom are we building? These passages were not written in a vacuum. They occurred over time. As people built their kingdom, watched their kingdom crumbled, and were carried off into exile. So you have one person going, we're about to build our kingdom. We're going to do it in God's with me, right? Let's go, right? And they justified all sorts of things that they could do, right? And that sounds to me a little push, but let's just push it there. Let's, get, let's feel that tension this morning. And then 300 years later, they look and they go, man, that was fleeting. That was dumb. We missed it. 
and began to think and process, and they wrote after the fact. This kingdom that was built crumbles, they turn into exile, they say we should write down the stories about what happened back then, and they begin to write down the stories with a theological lens in place, an interpretive mind in place that now they look back at the events and they say, hold on, let's look here. generations past. And these God followers, and I'm just going to use this word, if you're uncomfortable with it, that's fine, we'll talk about it later, reinterpret the story through a new theological lens. Okay? Let's just use that word. Maybe that's a little hard, but let's use that word. Another way to say this, maybe this is a little easier to hear, is that God allowed them to tell their own story of their own experience. So they weren't just recording history, they were telling us about their experience with God. See, they're kind of terrible historians, if we're being honest. And sometimes that's the struggle with the Bible. Last week we discovered that sometimes we go to the Bible and we try to read it like sophomore year of biology. And the problem is, it doesn't work really well that way. Let's let the writers speak for themselves. Let's ask the better question of, why are they telling me this? And we learned last week, it took us to an incredible place of worship about understanding God's protection over us. It was beautiful. The same thing here. We have to start asking, why are they trying to tell me this? They're not trying to be amazing historians. They're trying to theologically interpret and help us understand something. So here's the thing. This apparent contradiction that's in the Bible is actually great news. This isn't an opportunity to throw the Bible out the window. It's an opportunity to embrace this absolutely incredible truth. That God gave the people the chance to tell their own story and to share their own faith and help us learn something so important and so critical. Now the question becomes, whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? Am I being tempted to build my own? Am I being led here? Begins to ask a whole new sort of questions. Now here's what's awesome. This invitation is also found in the words of Jesus. Uh, the, book in, the book of Luke in the New Testament in our Bibles tells the story of the life of Jesus. It's written by the same person who wrote the book of Acts. So if you're ever going to have fun, just read Luke and go straight on into Acts. It tells the same story. But listen to this. It, listen how the, the book of Luke concludes before it jumps into Acts. Listen to this. He said to them, Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And if you've heard that before, you go, that's pretty cool. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit that's about to come. But if you're reading it from the direction of the disciples, things are actually a little scary because he says, here's what's said. Let me explain the scriptures to you. Let me show you what what my life was about and what I was here to do. Then he says, now repentance and forgiveness of sins is going to be preached to all the nations. And they're following Jesus going, all right, we're with you again as you continue to preach because we want to stay behind you because we think it's going to be cool to watch you preach that. 
And then Jesus turns a corner and he goes, and now what I want you to do is go to the city and you're going to clothe power on high. Oh, and by the way, I'm leaving. And they all go, what are you doing? And we see this in scripture. The disciples look around and they go, um, I'm out. I'm going back to fishing. That was easier. Uh, I'm going to go back over here, right? And, start, and, and so we see this sort of thing of what are we supposed to do? Jesus goes and then the early church begins. And he, they listen to this. Jesus leaves having written no books. Jesus didn't sit right down and write a guide for his followers. He just tells them, okay, now go. Go. Go and share this story of repentance with the world. He says, go. Go and tell the news. And baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go. The verb there is awesome. As you are going. So just this becomes the story of your life is about the repentance of Jesus. Go. And he says, by the way, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I'm out. You got the Holy Spirit, but just go and do. (laughs) So they're supposed to go tell the story with no rules. No, no, No explanation of what this is supposed to look like. So what do you think they did? They went and they told their story. And then this is where it gets cool. They wrestled together. What does it mean to have a relationship with God in light of this relationship with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And the Bible doesn't hide how messy this was. The New Testament is basically a bunch of people arguing, debating, constructing. What does it mean to follow Jesus in our context? And they struggled with this. How do we take this ancient faith? Some of them got mad at each other. And I love it. The scriptures don't hide it. They look at each other and go, you know what? I'm tired. You go that way. I'll go this way. We both love Jesus. We just have totally different approaches to it. And they go in their opposite directions. And the scriptures don't hide it. Nobody sits around and sings kumbaya and hugs. They say, we have a difference of opinion. Okay. And, and it's like they get to tell their own story. Now, here's the cool thing, and and I'm going to wrap up here. The conversation here doesn't end with the Bible. Every generation wrestles, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, this is where this gets super cool. One of the early followers of Jesus, that fisherman named Peter, gives advice to people in the early church on how to share their story. And his advice has huge implications for us. Listen to this, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. All right, all right, let's put Jesus first, okay? And then he just says, nothing else. He doesn't give like this huge list. He just says, put Christ first. Then he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, some people have pulled this out of context. They prepared to give an answer to everyone, right? So they think you're supposed to have all the answers to every single thing. And people think this all the time, right? Pastor, what does it mean about this? I don't know. What do you think? Well, no, 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 no. You're supposed to have all the answers. No, I'm just a fellow traveler. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's figure this out together, right? I have some thoughts. You know, we can share together. But this is for you, too. Be- because here's what he says. He says, you don't have to have an answer to everything. You don't have to know all the pieces. It doesn't have to all make sense all the time. You you might look like a walking contradiction. Because here's what he says. Give the reason for the hope you have. The hope you have. Your story is not my story. My story is not your story. 
Your experience with God makes you uniquely qualified to share what God has done in your life. Our stories are going to look different as we grow and develop in our faith. And someday, here's my hope, you're going to look back and you're going to see how you have changed as God has changed your life. And that's what these two passages teach us. That's not a contradiction. It's growth in your relationship with God. Transformation on an absolutely personal level. And your story, your story is a story worth sharing. That's what I love about this. Is that God takes these two passages, he says, look at these people. Through 300 years, how they grew and how they changed and how they began to understand who God is. He says, that's what I want for your life. You come into faith, you have certain expectations and understandings, and you actually grow. You don't say stagnant in your faith. It is not a badge of honor to drink coffee black. And it is not a badge of honor to look and say, I have no questions. I have no issues. I, I, I'm completely secure. I just have faith. It's not a badge of honor. That just means you're not growing. And God wants us to grow because a story of transformation is a story that he wants us to tell. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning. As we look at this passage, as we hear, God, what you have to tell us through it. God, we thank you that we can ask hard questions here, that we can learn, that we can grow together. God, we thank you that this is not happening in a vacuum, but happening in community. God, this week, would you help us to grow together? Would you help us to learn? And God, would you help us to see your transformation that you want to have take place in every single one of us as we tell you our story of how you've changed our lives. In your name that we pray. Amen.